Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. a little bit about um, something that I'm obviously interested in by the title of my book, right? It's called The Obligated Self, Maternal Subjectivity in Jewish Thought. And so I want to tell you a little bit about something that I think um, sort of the larger issue at work, which, is, which goes to core assumptions about, um, about who we are in the world, right? Um, how are, how are we related to other people? Um, what are our choices? And so I want to basically suggest some classic rabbinic assumptions, kind of lay them out, something that I think really powers the whole system of rabbinic Judaism, Judaism as a whole, um, and then explain why I think those run counter to a set of assumptions that then Jews had to deal with as they started to leave ghettos, shtetlach, you know, and, and become part of the modern nation, right, in the 18th century, 19th century. Um, and then how I think we ought to really grapple with and maybe recover some of these ideas about um, obligation that are so crucial to Judaism, but to do that in a, in a perhaps a new key, a new way of thinking about them that takes into account the kind of society we live in. So that's my plan for us. And um, I have some texts and I really invite you to um, talk. I, I really see this as, as interactive. I obviously have what to say, but, um, but I really want to discuss these issues with you as we go. So don't feel like you need to sort of hold on to every question until the very end. Um, okay, so the, the key words that I want to think about in rabbinic Judaism are mitzvah, right, which sometimes people translate as good deed. But if you think about a more traditional, you know, translation, it would be what? Commandment, right. And chova. Chova is a word that I think can be translated as obligation, but it really comes from debt, right? Like to be in debt monetarily, right? There is this notion of, of owing something to someone, right? Whether you think of that in monetary terms or, or other terms. So I think of those as really powerful orienting words that um, really helped the sages who constructed Judaism um, think about the way in which a, it is to be a Jew in the world. Um, and as I said, this is going to become problematic in uh, the last couple hundred years, but, um, but let's start by trying to just think about this, this notion of standing in the world as obligated, being already obligated when you come into the world. Right? When you think about a newborn baby, right, you don't typically think, oh, this one owes something to someone, right? I mean, do you? Do you it's just like, there it is. It's a, it's a fresh start. It's like everything is open to it. Um, 
right? And so I want to ask us to imagine sort of a, a slightly different way of imagining coming into the world. So I have some source sheets. So I want to tell the story of what it means to be obligated by first thinking about the story that is so crucial to our narrative as Jews. And that's a story that really begins this week, Parshat Shemot, right, where the Jews descend into slavery. And then this kind of triggers an, a big narrative that we celebrate every year with Pesach, right? The story of redemption, okay? So we can't really think about standing in the world as obligated without thinking about this story that we tell, okay? And the story that we tell starts with a notion that God redeems the Jews from Egypt. Why? Why? Why on what level? Textual level? On a theological level? Anything. I'm open. I'm open to whatever. So they can accept the Torah a little bit later on. Yeah. So that they can accept the Torah. Okay, great. Great. It's a really important, and that's, I, wanna, I want us to focus on that idea, that God redeems them so that they can accept Torah. Right now, it's weird. In, at Pesach time, we tell the story about Cherut, about freedom. Right? God took the Israelites out of Egypt so that they could be free. But it's really, that's sort of like a partial telling, and it's an important telling, right? Of course, it's, it's basic also to who we are. But it's freedom to accept and to follow Torah, right? It's not just freedom in this kind of open-ended sense that like, okay, great, we're free to party, we're free to do whatever we want, right? No, it's freedom for a purpose, okay? So, and the way that that's written about in Torah is... Um, in, a, in a certain way that I think makes this connection clear, that it's, it's really less about freedom and something else instead. So um, I will, I guess because it's a podcast, maybe I'll read this, but <laughs> feel free to, to, to jump in with questions, right? So one of the many examples I could have pulled out from, from the beginning of the book of Exodus is God says to Moshe, Vayomer Hashem el Moshe, Bo el Paro, come to Pharaoh, translated often as go to Pharaoh, and say to him, Ko Amar Hashem, right? God says, let my people go. And then there's something else at the end of the sentence. It's not just let my people go, it's let my people go what? so that they can serve me or worship me. And I put in on your source sheet that root word, ayin vet dalid, right? That word is very important here, that they can serve me, vayavduni, because it's the same root word that gives us what? Avodah, okay, but also eved, slave. Avdut, slavery. Okay, so this is interesting, right? Here they are. They're in slavery in Egypt, right? And God wants to redeem them from that condition so that they can be Avdeh Hashem, God's servants, God's slaves, if you will, right? So that word slavery, service, worship, these are all related by that same root, and so what you see, I think what the Torah is uh, trying to communicate here, right, is that God is redeeming them from the state of being serv serving the wrong master, right? They are serving the wrong master, and actually what they need to be doing is serving the right master, which is God. 
That's a very different narrative but from just let my people go, period. Right? Okay, so there's something similar that binds these two things together, and so it's really about who you're serving that's different. It's not the fact of being in service. Okay, and of course the rabbis have a party with thinking about what are those differences? How can we talk about it? Because it's such a stark comparison. And, and later on in Vayikra, in Leviticus, God says, avadaihem, they are my slaves. They are my servants. And so the rabbis are like, wait, I thought they just got out of slavery. Why is God now saying that they're my slaves, my servants, right? And so, of course, they want to think about what does that mean? But nonetheless, there's this kind of similar state. Okay, so um, if you look at the next passage, if we, we fast forward just a little bit to just before Matan Torah, just before the giving of the, the Torah at Har Sinai, um, there's this passage, very famous passage here, about how uh, that starts with an introduction. Okay, um, If you look at verse 4, this is your second text, right? you see what I did to the Egyptians, right? And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to me. In other words, introduction, this is who I am. I'm the one who took you out of there, right? So therefore now, it's your turn, right? It's your turn to do your part in this relationship, right? Um, so, and God says, if you will keep my commandments, uh, you will be my treasured people, et cetera, blah, 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 right? And then, so there, here's the, the two-part, the bilateral covenant, and then in verse 8, if you scooch down on your page, right, everybody is on board. They enthusiastically agree to being subject to this covenant, to serving God. Okay, great. So they accept this condition of serving God, right? Um, now, Let's talk for a moment about a very famous midrash that um, appears in the Babylonian Talmud, where the rabbis think about this acceptance. And why don't we think for just a moment, like, what do you imagine the possibilities for B'nai Israel, the, the people of Israel, to say at that moment, where God says, okay, I've, just to remind you, I took you out of Mitzrayim, I brought you here, now I'm going to present to you this possibility. You can be my people, right? You have this mission. Uh, and what do you think? But it's more than that. The verse starts out with, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. It's not that I took you out. Remember what I did to them. Yes, remember I what I did to them. And out. yes. Now it's your turn, which is the implied... There are consequences if you say no. Aha, so there's a veiled threat that you're seeing in that atem re'item, right? You saw what I did to the Egyptians, parentheses, and this is what could happen to you if you don't toe the line. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, if you don't toe the line, and if you do toe the line, you will be my special people. It's not going to happen to you again. I'm not going to strike you down the way I did the Egyptians. Okay, great. So... Your part, yes. Okay, good. So God does God's part, everyone agenda God, right? And you do your part. But I think what I heard in the first part of what you were saying is that 
I mean, is there an option to say no? Is, is the no kind of a, is this like a rational decision? It, it is an option, but it's laying out yeah. the consequences of the action. The consequences of the action of saying no could be, could, eh, could you be. saw what it happened to the Egyptian. Be, but it could be. No, I, okay. I don't see it as an implied threat. I just say, you know, you've seen my powers, and that means I can protect you in the future. Ah, okay. Okay, nice. So this is, this is a, a different way of reading Atem Ritem. You saw what I did to the Egyptians, so you know my power. And that power may come to protect you, it may come to schmice you, we don't know yet, yeah. right? But it's big. It's something to grapple with. Okay, good, yeah. The other non-rational part of this is in verse 5, that when God says, if you obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, then, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, the people don't really know what that is. They've agreed onto something where they don't know the details. Beautiful. Okay, they have agreed, or they are they are agreeing in verse eight to something that they don't know the details of, right? And so we have another famous midrash about this or way of reading. It's actually a different verse in I think chapter twenty-four where it says not sevenishma. They say, sure, sign me up, and then I'll understand what the terms are. Okay. Right, so, so you're bringing that here to bear, and I think it's totally relevant here, because they say, great. I mean, they've heard, like, the headline version, but they're, you know, uh, what does it say? Ushmar um, Temepriti, keep my covenant, but, I mean, what do they know about what's involved? So in each of these ways that you're all pointing out, there is a moment of assent, of yes, before really weighing all the options, right? This is not how I think about, you know, going and choosing something trivial, a brand of toothpaste, right? I'm going to look at all the ingredients and the price and this and that, and I'm going to weigh my options, or something, you know, bigger, right? Where, where we think about the kinds of big choices we make in terms of weighing different things, and some of us maybe make charts, and we put the pros and the cons. That is not what's happening here, Okay. It's a Kierkegaardian leap of faith. Yes. Anyway, it's like we don't know what you said. We're going to take the covenant, but we're not sure what it is, but we're going to trust. Yes, yes, exactly. So, so great. You've already teased out some of the issues that I think the rabbis themselves in our classical literature are, are struggling with and also are, are thinking about. So if you turn to the next page, um, again, a, a midrash that... Um, famous, infamous, I don't know what you would call it, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to drosh on this, if, sorry, stay with the first page for a second, um, verse, uh, oh, I actually, sorry, I didn't give you that one in the second text, but they're saying um, in Exodus 19.17 that they stood at the foot of the mountain, okay, they stood at the foot of the mountain, okay, so there's um, that's a passage in Exodus that now we're going to hear a midrash about. Okay, so they're going to read as the rabbis like to do, hyper-literally. They're going to play with the words of at the foot of the mountain to read it to say under the mountain, because you could read it both ways, under the mountain. Okay, Rabbi Avdimi Barchama Barchasa said, and now we're on the back page, all right, this teaches that the Holy One, blessed be God, overturned the mountain, held it up above them like a tub or a cask or something very big and threatening. Imagine the mountain levitating and being right above them and said, if you accept Torah, good. 
If not, here will be your grave, meaning I'm going to release the mountain on top of you. Okay, so let's just stop there for a second and not go on for a moment. So what is, the, what is it that they're picking up on in imagining and using this wordplay as, if you will, an excuse to play out this idea, right? You just said it. You said, do, do they really have the power to refuse, right? Or there's a veiled threat, or there's, as you just said, um, a kind of gesture towards God's power, in which case, in which case, did they really have a choice to not say yes? No. Then it's like, okay. Um, okay. Going back, Moses negotiate the negotiation with Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. That's Abraham. Abraham says, if I find 50 people, he says, no. Well, what happens if it's 48 or 49? So that reference is you can negotiate. Ah, good. But only Abraham, Moses could negotiate to get across the River Jordan. That's right. Is that the only example? Of, of somebody reasoning with God reasoning with and God. sort of trying to talk God out of a plan. Yeah, no, it's interesting. So you're bringing up the case of Abraham uh, in dialogue, shall we say, with God. Yes, they get down to 10 of Abraham talking to God and saying, you know, actually, could you please just hold off on your plan to destroy uh, Stoma and Amara. Um, that, yes, you're right, that doesn't happen here. Although we have many examples either in Midrash or even in the text where you, of the Torah where you have a figure sort of imploring and getting God to change God's mind, right? But this is not one of them. <laughs> this is a little bit black and white. Okay, good. So, um, so you all spelled out or you see the problem, right? If you accept Torah, if not, there will be your grave. Okay, so it's the, it's the Godfather, Right? God's giving them uh, an offer they can't refuse. Okay. So, um, response. Rav Acha Bar Yaakov said, uh oh, from here there is a substantial claim against Torah. Meaning what? What do you think? This is a. Diminished in some way? Yeah, Torah has been diminished in some way by, it, well, if God had to force it on them, then that suggests that they didn't want it, right? Or there's some, pro, you know, Torah is not appealing, whatever it is, right? And so, um, so, yes, that's true. And so we have another, a third person coming in to say, uh, okay, Rava said, even so, they again accepted it in the time of Achashverosh. As it is written, they ordained, they took upon them, upon their seed, etc. from Esther, right? In other words, um, he's saying there's another verse from Esther in the time of Ahasuerus where they actually, it's sort of like renewing their vows if the first vow, if the, you know, is a forced marriage, and now they're like renewing it. Okay, I guess they actually wanted it. Okay, in any event, right? The rabbis are sort of saying, what kind of acceptance is it really? They're going to be kind of accepting a condition of being obligated, and maybe they didn't really have a choice. 
Okay, now there's lots of different midrashim. This is not the only one that imagines this moment. There's others that are uh, accentuating completely different sides of it that are not about accepting Torah under compulsion. Um, nonetheless, I, I want to use this, and, and I've, we've spent a little time on it so that I can come back to it later to see how I think there's something very profound, actually, about this that I, that I want us to build on, to think about in what ways do we actually have obligations that we, cannot, that we did not choose and that we simply are born into. And that that's a kind of reality about our lives. Okay, so, so we'll hold that thought. Um, okay, so the rest of the encounter at Har Sinai, Mount Sinai, involves detailing all of these commandments, right? If you, if you stick with the text, actually not just through the rest of the book of Exodus, but all the way through the book of Leviticus, right? All kinds of obligations. And the obligations, as they're understood by the rabbis and, and also in Torah, have you know, there's lots of different kinds of obligations that B'nai Israel, the, the people of Israel have, right? Whether that's to parents, to teachers, to the community as a whole, to the poor, to one's fellow Jew, to, one, to non-Jews, to the non-Jewish government, to God, etc. right? These are obligations that differ in all sorts of different ways, but the basic fact of obligation is a given. Okay, uh, and if you look on, and this is probably a familiar point to the next text, You'll notice that in Sefer Devarim, in the book of Deuteronomy, this moment of covenant is imagined to extend throughout time to all Jews who were not born yet or whatever, right? So in this is Deuteronomy 29, I make this covenant with its sanctions, not with you alone, but with those who are standing here with us today before, this is Moses speaking, by the way, before God, and with those who are not with us today. And so this is imagined to be the beginning of this transgenerational covenant. So if you are born a Jew, you are born into this covenant. You are born into these obligations. And if you are a convert, you, you, part of the deal when you convert is that you are kind of taking those on. It's as if you are born into them, okay? Um, okay, so this is something that for the rabbis is about Jewish human nature, right? The Jewish human condition. It's what it means to be a Jew is to be born into these obligations. As I suggested earlier, I think there's something, and this is kind of my contemporary lens on this, I think there's something profound here that is a, that involves extending that idea of obligation beyond being obligated to Jews, right? It's not just a Jewish human condition. It's for the rabbis, if the Jew is the, the kind of prototypical person, and that's their, sure, their uh, you know, uh, self-referentiality, that's their ethnocentrism, sure. But if the Jew is the typical human being, then we can think about this as what it means to be human in their eyes and in ours. Okay, so I promised that I would tell you a little bit about why this is a problem, why this way of thinking about being in the world is a problem. Okay, are, you, are we ready? Any questions? Well, you just said a Jew is a typical human being. Uh, I don't know, what does that mean? What I mean by that, um, when I say the Jew is the typical human being in the rabbinic literature, I mean that they are thinking of the Jew as like the default person, right? Other people are marked as whatever they are, non-Jew in some way, Roman, 
you know, Zoroastrian, etc. Right? But to for the rabbis, because they themselves are Jews, and they're a certain type of Jew, right? They're thinking of themselves as kind of like, oh, I'm the neutral, I'm the default person. Right? So if if what it means to be a Jew is to be obligated, what I'm saying is, sorry, for me in a kind of in the year 2020, I'm thinking, well, I'm really attracted to something about this model, but they only thought it had to do with Jews. And I think there's something in there that's, um, that's wise about the nature of human being that I want to kind of extrapolate from there. Does that make sense? It does. And, um, and then I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking about the word responsibility. Yes. Slash obligated, and does that factor into Yes, you're asking if responsibility, yeah, for me, responsibility is very much linked to obligation, right? We're born into certain responsibilities. We were born, you know, to return to that word chov, of debt, right? We're coming into the world already in relationship to other people, but also in relationships of responsibility, and that's certainly, I think, how the rabbis thought, if I can so bold. Okay, so we're ready for part two, right? This is how this starts to kind of come onto a collision course with a new set of ways of thinking, okay? Um, the, the starting assumption of the rabbis, I think, places them at odds with the modern Western political tradition, legal tradition. And when I say modern, I'm really thinking about like the French Revolution and beyond. French Revolution, American Revolution, um, and you'll see here that um, I've got a, a little text from the Declaration of Independence. Let me just say something about this for a moment, which is that just as I said, the notion of coming into the world with obligations has its roots in a myth, the myth of Sinai, the myth of this, this story. I, when I say myth, I don't mean whether it's true or not true. I just mean a story about how we got to that state. Um, a legal theorist, Robert Cover, um, has, has helped uh, articulate this idea that there's a counter-myth, there's a different myth that obtains in Western modern political theory, and that is the myth of the social contract. If the key word for us is rights, then the myth is the story of the social contract. So let me just say what that myth is just to kind of briefly gesture toward it. And when I'm talking about modern Western legal theory, I'm talking about like Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, um, okay, so these thinkers who are important early modern political thinkers who then shape a lot of the basic structures of our, of our government. Okay, so the in this story, there's a story told about the state of nature, okay? In this, in, they theorize, these political theorists each theorize that it's not exactly this is what happened, but it's sort of like, let's imagine how people get together to form a society. They start off in this state called the state of nature. And in the state of nature, there's a bunch of individuals, right? And um, they exist without government. That's what they mean by a state of nature. There's no um, sort of ruling authority that's gonna help them adjudicate disputes and kind of figure out how to run things. And so each of these thinkers imagines it happening different ways, but the social contract is what happened 
So when all of these individuals get together and decide, you know what, it's actually better for us, it's more secure for us to figure out how we're going to jointly create a government or to submit to some other more powerful authority, which is how Hobbes imagines it, because otherwise we can't really enjoy this personal autonomy that we all are endowed with by virtue of just being a human being, right? So they start with the understanding that we're free agents. We are autonomous beings. We start out as individuals, one, and we start out with rights, basic rights that God gives us. And here you might hear the Declaration of Independence, right? Each of us is endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, right? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, right? We start off as individuals with rights, and then we might forfeit some of that extreme liberty for security, okay? All right, so what are some of the things in which this myth put, uh, how does this myth operate with certain assumptions that are different from the ones that we just spent some time outlining? What are some of the differences? A choice is being made. Yeah, we make a choice, right? Absolutely. There is a rational choice there. As opposed to having an obligation from the get-go. Exactly. As opposed to having an obligation from the get-go, right? We start out as free agents, and then we take on obligations. Okay, good. There's another important difference, I think, which is about being an individual first. Remember, at... Har Sinai, the people of Israel are a group. They collectively take on obligation, right? It is an obligation, set of obligations that are incumbent upon them as a group. Of course, individuals are part of it, but the individual is sort of secondary to the collective. Here, in, in this myth of the social contract, the individual is first, and then the collective is generated, okay? So this is how we get this... Um, this is to very briefly gesture toward, right? This is kind of how we start thinking about, oh, our democracy happens when all of these people in a state of nature in this myth come together and decide that we are going to rule ourselves. We give ourselves the authority to govern. Okay, and so that's hence the Declaration of Independence, right? The, the, the country is formed out of this basic idea. And so here is what how Robert Cover states it, and it's on your sheet as well. The principal word in Jewish law, which occupies a place equivalent in evocative force to the American legal system's rights, is the word mitzvah, which literally means commandment, right? So he's sort of counterposing, on the one hand, mitzvah and myth of Sinai with rights and the social contract. Okay, so what happens? What happens in the late 18th century is it, for Jews in Europe, Central Europe in particular, and I just want to sort of make clear that this is not a universal story of how Jews um, kind of come to be nationals or come to be citizens, right? There's a lot of different stories to tell. One is, has to do with Eastern Europe, one has to do with the Maghreb, Sephardi experiences, right, These, and Mizrahi. So this is a story that is important because it, it ends up shaping Jewish life in the United States, which is where we are. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. 
Thank you so much. And now back to the learning. Okay, so I'm going to selectively tell a story about modernity. And that story is, uh, has to do with how the model of the Jewish self comes into collision with this new and um, state-sanctioned myth, right? Okay, so on a political level, there are dominant voices in the emerging nation states, French Revolution and, and so on, um, that see Jewish practice, which is collective in its obligations, as a, as a problem, as an obstacle to being individual citizens who are loyal to the state, okay? And so we get all kinds of objections that are being kind of thrown out there as, oh, this is why Jews shouldn't be citizens. Oh, this is why Jew it's a problem for Jews to be citizens because they have these like messy, sticky obligations to each other and will they really be, uh, you know, loyal to the state and to the citizen first, right? And so they're going to start bringing forward people who are actually both proponents and opponents of Jewish civil rights, they're going to start bringing all kinds of reasons to bear why Jews have to kind of reformulate their, their understanding of themselves. And this is how we get the emergence of Reform Judaism, right? We're in a reform, reform shul. This is where this all comes from, is this struggle, okay? Um, yeah, please. I'm, I'm interested. Can you give me an example of something to do with Judaism that people who are of the state uh, theory would seem as threatening or sure. an example of how, look, at they do this, so clearly they couldn't fit in over here. Perfect. Okay, an example to make this more concrete. Yes, many examples. One could be, will they serve in the army? They have this other calendar where they have to rest one day of, out of every seven. What happens if there's a war and we need to call them up? Are they gonna really be good soldiers? What about kosher food? They don't eat with others, right? If they don't eat with us, huh, maybe they don't want to socialize with us. They don't want to be fellow citizens with us, okay? A set of assumptions. So that, those are some examples, okay? And you know, on, on a philosophical, so that's like kind of on the political level. On the philosophical level, we've got, um, sort of this modality of commandedness that, that seems problematic to them. They're, they're sort of starting to think of the individual with reason making rational choices as the basic unit of society. So what about these Jews who don't start out with an idea that you should rationally choose, but instead it's imposed on them? That, they, they make a whole religion out of that. Wait a minute, how can a people who thinks that way actually kind of be fully integrated into our new way of looking at things, okay? So there are a number of assaults, I would say, from different places, philosophical, political, social, on some of these basic core ideas about, about Jewish, uh, Jewish nature. And so when you start going through the modern experience, and you know, I teach like a whole seminar on this, so this is a, this is a very condensed version of this <laughs> argument, but basically, when you go through a few more generations after this, uh, after these initial assaults and kind of reformulations and the development of Reform Judaism and the development of all kinds of different things, you get theologians in the early 20th century who are starting to think 
about some of these core ideas like commandedness in a new way. And that's a way that is not going to anymore be tethered to these social, political, civil obligations that Jews have traditionally had to each other, but which are now no longer viable in the same way they once were. Instead, they're going to start thinking about it as the relationship between one individual and another. And so I'm thinking here about people like Franz Rosenzweig and Martin Buber and Emmanuel Levinas, if any of those names may or may not ring a bell, each in a different way is going to think about, you know, like think if you've heard of I and thou, yes, right? So there's, there's this encounter that happens between two individuals and something happens there, right? Buber is not as much of a fan of obligation as some of these other folks I just mentioned, but so let's think about Levinas for a moment, right? That I, when I encounter my fellow human being, I stand in a relationship of obligation to her. Before I've chosen it, I just, by the fact of them being, I am obligated to them. I, am, I stand in this place of obligation. So, so again, this is a very kind of quick version of a complicated story, but essentially you can see the same structure is there. I start out obligated. But now, instead of having that happen in sort of the world of politics and the world of the social and keeping kosher and serving in the army, all of these things were like before, oh no, my obligation is to the Jewish people, right? And maintaining God's laws. Now that whole way of thinking has been kind of jettisoned out of necessity. And instead, we have this idea of commandedness, but now it's me to you. But if you look at it from that perspective, when you say I'm obligated to this person, would that obligation be to treat them in accordance with the Torah dictates? Or what exactly is that obligation? Well, that's a great question. What exactly am I obligated to do for them? Right? And this is something that different thinkers um, treat different ways. Sometimes it's in their philosophical writing. Sometimes it's just sort of how they live their lives and the kinds of things they did. But this is where I think we need to flesh it out more. And I think we need to use this as a basis for really re-engaging this idea and thinking about it, right? So, so I want to come back to that in just a moment. I think that's a really good question. I think it's a question that we all ought to be thinking about. So so isn't the question about is human nature good or bad? Is, that what's the question? is the question human nature good or bad? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think they're they're struggling with that. Yeah, because the Torah makes the assumption that you humans don't know what you're doing, and here's a manual of how to do it. And modern thought says, well, left to their own devices, maybe people will be good and treat each other nicely. I think within both Torah sources and in modern philosophy, there's, there's a lot of different starting assumptions on the basic moral, moral character of human beings. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that that's the struggle that, that these thinkers that I'm looking at are thinking about. I think it's instead about how far does my obligation extend? Because the modern, the modern assumption is that 
we don't need religion because we can figure out the good stuff on, on our own. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're, you're pointing out this, this truth, which is that, you know, the state basically ends up taking over a lot of the functions of the religion. And so we, we talk about this as secularization, right? That religion sort of disappears. Well, I think, you know, no one's saying anymore that religion disappears, right? I mean, you read the newspaper, no one's talking about religion disappearing. <laughs> Even if we live in this country in a place that is structured by a certain kind of secularism, right? I think no one's ready to dismiss anymore. Well, my assumption is that religion has already disappeared. That's what yeah, well, in certain places, the, the kind of outward signs of religion have disappeared, but in many others, they have not, right? And so, whatever, we can talk about whether, how, how present it is or not. But uh, let me sort of put a post-it on, on your question about that, and, and just say for, for a placeholder, perhaps, that um, Levinas, for instance, this philosopher I just mentioned, is... Um, very much influenced by the Musar uh, movement in Eastern, in Lithuania, basically, in Litvish Jewish thought. Um, and one of his, uh, the people that he reads has a, a saying that is, um, my neighbor's material needs are my spiritual needs. Right, my neighbor's material needs are my spiritual needs, meaning, my service to the material deprivation of my neighbor is how I am fulfilled as a human being, right? How I am not fulfilled, meaning in the sense of, of feeling satisfied, but in that's my duty. My duty is to attend to my neighbor's material needs, right? Other people are going to think about this, you know, what am I obligated to do in different terms, but that's just one example. But I want to maybe steer us to... Um, how I wanted to build on these thinkers, and how I think we might forge a conversation building on this idea of intersubjective, person-to-person -person obligation. On the one hand, it comes out of a, a, a certain demand faced by Jews that is, you know, uh, we, can, we can look at the downsides of it, we can look at that as sort of the price of becoming citizens, but they, they invent this intersubjective obligation to talk about being commanded, being responsive, being responsible, to go back to your word, right? Um, and I want us to, to think about that, you know, to take up your question. So um, I'll tell you just a little bit about this book because that's kind of the core, the core interest of this book. Um, I will tell you that for me, and this says as much about my privilege as it does about anything else. Having a child was the first time I felt like I really understood what rabbinic obligation was about. Why? Because it is the kind of obligation that you cannot simply pretend doesn't exist if you have a kid, right? If you choose to raise this kid who you have, or if you take on a kid, right, you now are in a position of non-choice, right? You have to respond. And so this is, this, I, it's, a, it's a kind of popular book, but I really love this, this quote that Jennifer Senior has in All Joy and No Fun. Children are the last binding obligation in a culture that asks for almost no other permanent commitments at all. 
right? And so for me, having, um, this is not to say this is, uh, I'm, I'm not promoting parenthood, I'm not promoting, right? But I'm saying experientially, right? When you have a kid wake up, if you're asleep at three in the morning and crying out, that to me is a prime, like it's, it's the most basic expression of a call that cannot be simply ignored, right? You don't always answer it, right? You can transgress the obligation. That's what I think is so brilliant about the rabbis, right? They, people transgress all the time. They do not fulfill their obligations, but that doesn't mean the obligation doesn't exist. And that's the difference, I think, from a mode in which we start out thinking of ourselves as rational free agents who take on obligation, right? So if you have um, a child, or you know, we can extend this, another one who needs us, but really in your face, in like, I'm, I'm, it's right standing in front of me, right? That is a core meaning of obligation. And so I feel like there's something really powerful about how these modern Jewish theologians reinterpreted commandedness as something that happens between two people. They didn't ever write about children. They didn't write about all kinds of real life situations. And so part of what I do in this book is try to do that. But I think that caretaking for a young child is this raw, immediate form of obligation where you are tethered materially, bodily to another person for whom you are responsible and whom you usually love and care about, right? And so um, it is a, a resource. I guess I see that as a resource for starting to think about this rabbinic model again because it, our society is really one in which there are no binding obligations that are really recognized in a deep way, right? Think about our maternity leave policy. Think about elder care. Think about all these different ways in which our society does not support obligations that we have to each other. Think about what's happening. You know, here we are in Phoenix, right? Two hours from here at the border. This, I mean, such a incredible, not just uh, non-recognition, but actually interruption of this basic obligation of parents and children, right? So, so we're in this society that, that this is counter, right? What I'm proposing is counter to what we are experiencing in our daily lives. But I, not, you know, maybe nonetheless, or because of that, I wanna really grapple with, I wanna suggest that we grapple with this rabbinic notion. And that's where I wanna actually return us to that image of the, the mountain hovering above the Israelites. And what I think is so profound about that is that it imagines obligation kind of like gravity, right? Like you can't fight it. <laughs> it's just, you know, when we're born, yes, we tend to think first of this, oh, here's this little baby, fresh start, et cetera. But like, let's now have a different perspective. Let's think who nurtured that child and, you know, turned its own food into food for that child? Who built the facility where that child was born, let's say in a hospital? There, was, there were years and years of training that went into people having the skills to look after that child. There were roads that were built 
that brought me to that hospital, right? In other words, a baby who is born is already born into a web of, of people who have done things to simply permit it to exist, right? We don't typically have that in view. And so what I'm asking in, and using the rabbinic model for is to think about how can we bring that into our sphere of view, into our, into our you know, range of thinking so that we can then start to talk about how do I you know, deal with all of these many obligations? I think you had a question? Not so much a question. I'm just sort of trying to puzzle all this stuff out. So a woman has a child, and yeah, she's biologically hardwired to try to take care of it. I mean, there are exceptions. But what if she, say, has, say, five children and there's not enough food? Is she going to try to feed all five and have all five of them starve, or is she going to abandon one so the other four can live? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I thought about that when you said about the border. I mean, if we try to take care of the rest of the world, the U.S. is only 5% of the population. It, it just isn't going to happen. Great. So you're talking about how do you adjudicate among competing obligations, right? And that is absolutely, I mean, that's a, so, that's a critical question. Me, you have the free thinking facility, but you also are biologically hardwired to do a whole bunch of stuff. And it's hard to know where the separation is. It's also hard to figure out, you know, are you going to go with the biological? Are you going to separate mm. the so you're talking about this this biological sort of um, hard wiring, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Right, and you know what's really interesting, and part of the research that I did for this book involved reading um, some of the work of feminist um, uh, evolutionary biologists who actually address this question very specifically, especially a primatologist named um, Sarah Blaffer Hardy, um, and her work actually um, and and others as well. Um, shows that we have this kind of, um, okay, well, it's biological, it's hardwired, the end, right? There's nothing more to say. And actually, it's, a, it's very interesting. It's very complicated, right? Not all, not all um, biological impulses are things that we uh, have the hormones to nurture or that we have social structures to nurture, right? So there's, there's a whole set of, you know, web of relationships, including in the, you know, primate world that help certain obligations get realized or not and help people adjudicate or animals adjudicate among competing obligations. So I'd, I wouldn't want to sort of um, map directly from one case to another, but I, I think, I guess I think it's, uh, it's important to really contend with this idea that we start out thinking, how am I already in, re in a relationship of responsibility to others as opposed to how do I choose, who do I, you know, make a life with, who do I endorse, who do I this? But it's not that simple. Before there was no. birth control, you'd hear stories of uh, a family that had like six kids and they couldn't afford it. And I know personally some people, they had to take two of the kids to an orphanage, broke her heart, never got yes. it. So there's that bond, that pain, that guilt, guilt over the obligation. I was not able to right. fulfill, so... Right, and you know, and you're speaking. I'm just repeating back here for the for other listeners um, that um, that it's really complicated, especially pre-birth control. And you know, it's I, I should also say that thinking about maternal obligation as a feminist, I mean, it's very um, you sort of feel like you're on thin ice all the time, or I did anyway, writing this because I feel like m 
the obligation to have children, <laughs> which is, you know, if you don't have birth control and you don't have, you know, social, it's, it's terrible. It's a terrible source of subjection and oppression for women, right? And it has been throughout history that women's, ex, you know, the expectation was to have babies and that is the, that is the work. And so I was very um, sort of fearful of doing something that might seem to endorse that. And, um, and I really uh, don't want to be read as, as doing that. So I think that, yes, there's this felt obligation that people have had and that has uh, certainly been the source of agony as well as many other things. Um, but I think that um, in a way what's, what's so fascinating um, about having children in an era and in a place where there's access to birth control, right, is that there's sort of this weird middle ground where like you can choose to have children if you, you know, meet certain various criteria of having the right, you know, parts and the right everything, um, but you can't choose which child to have. And that, to me, is this really interesting middle ground where, yeah, there is an element of choice that, you know, I certainly felt very privileged to have, right, access. It's not, it wasn't forced on me to have children, and I could also make use of, the, of whatever services I needed to help have children. And yet, you get what you get, you know? And so then you're obligated to that whoever you get. <laughs> Uh, so that's, to me, what made it really rich to think with. It's, it's the parents who still love the child. It's the axe murderer. Yeah. Yeah, Andrew Solomon writes very beautifully about this in um, Far From the Tree. I highly recommend. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's very complicated. Um, yeah, please. Quick question, because we have to leave. Yeah. Did you ever think about using the word feminine subjectivity versus maternal? Yeah, you're asking, did I think about feminine subjectivity as opposed to maternal? I really didn't, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, as I said before, I, I really felt this experience of obligation upon becoming a parent, um, and not, so I think of that as the operative thing, and I also, I was careful about maternal subjectivity. Even though it's in the title, I really, my argument in here is that parents of any gender have an opportunity when they have children to experience that kind of raw obligation that, that leads to further insights. And so it's not that I think all women should have children or that I think all mothers should experience this, but it's, I see it as an obligation that is... Um, really not distributed equally in our society. And not, that's not only in terms of gender, but if we think about how childcare is so often something that people who have their own children need to neglect those children to then provide care for other people's children, right? It's, it's really, um, it's more complicated than just men and women or mothers and not mothers. But I, I see it as, a, as the beginning point, as a resource. Well, you, what you just said, I think it has something to do with parenthood because you said whatever mm -hmm. gender. So. Parenthood, yeah, yeah. Although, you know, I think it's something that um, in general, if you look at the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, 
it, and you see the time use survey, which shows you know, who, who uses what time for what, right? you still see a great disparity in um, who provides childcare between a male and a female parent. And then, of course, if you think about hired um, childcare, that's a whole other story, which I have a chapter on in here because I think it's really important. So um, I'm gonna call it uh, a day for, for this. Um, thank you so much thank for your so questions. Much. Yeah, no, thank you very much. And uh, it's great to, great to learn. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.